The Ruth Page School of Dance is auditioning dancers for its civic ballet training company, designed to serve as a bridge between training and professional performance for serious dancers ages 17 to 22. Find more information at ruthpage.org. Welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media. And in today's episode, we'll unpack TikTok dance star Addison Ray's problematic appearance on Jimmy Fallon's show. We'll discuss two interesting alternative models for paying dancers that don't rely on performance. We will talk about how burlesque performers who are too often overlooked in the dance world have fared during the pandemic. And then we'll air our interview with Sydney L. Mosley, who is the artist, activist, and educator, and writer. She's an incredibly thoughtful voice in dance and beyond it. And if you've read her articles in Dance Magazine or Essence or the Brooklyn Rail, then you already know just how powerful her voice is. Sydney got into why dance folks have to allow themselves to stop producing just for the sake of producing. Um, we also talked about what's wrong with the way the dance world allocates resources, and we even got an update on how her garden is doing right now. We found out about her tomato plants, this year's tomato plants, which was delightful. It's a great interview. First, though, just our usual housekeeping before we get into all of that. If you are not yet following us on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit, please get on that. We are having some great discussions and a not insignificant amount of fun on those platforms. And then of course, don't forget to sign up for the Dance Edit newsletter. That will bring you daily dance news updates instead of weekly updates. And you can subscribe to that at thedanceedit.com. Okay, now it's time for our dance headline rundown, which is just a lot this week. It was a really busy dance news cycle. Dancing with the Stars has announced that it'll return for its 30th season in the fall, with Tyra Banks continuing as host. Also coming back to the ballroom will be longtime judge Len Goodman, who couldn't fulfill that role last year due to COVID travel restrictions. He was in the UK. Uh, details about his position this year have not yet been specified, but judges Derek Huff, Carrie Ann Anaba, and Bruno Tonioli will also return. Contestants, pro dancers, and a premiere date are still to be announced. I just 30 seasons? It's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, American Ballet Theater has announced that longtime artistic director Kevin McKenzie will retire after the 2022 season, at which point he'll have been at the post for 30 years. A search for his replacement will begin this summer. Obviously, there is so much to get into here and the fact that like he and Helgi Thomason are stepping down around the same time and also Karen Kane still doesn't have a successor at National Ballet of Canada like in the next couple of years we're about to see massive shifts at like major North American ballet companies it's it's almost hard to overstate the potential impact of this like big changing of the guard. We all have a lot of thoughts about it, unsurprisingly, but we know that Dance Magazine is planning some thoughtful coverage about what this could all mean for ballet. So stay tuned. We're going to have plenty more discussion about all of this in the weeks to come. 
Um, and congratulations to Queen Misty Copeland. On, <laughs> congratulations <laughs> to Misty Copeland on being awarded the Spingarn Medal at this year's NAACP Image Awards. The award recognizes the highest or noblest achievement by a living African American during the previous year or years. Some of Copeland's many notable accomplishments, of course, include her status as the first African American female principal dancer at American Ballet Theater and her time spent on former President Obama's Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. Not a lot of people got to see Misty's award presentation. It wasn't part of the televised show, but she deserves all the roses. So we will be including footage from that presentation in our newsletter this week, probably either the day that you're listening to this, Thursday or Friday. Keep an eye out. Misty Copeland for everything. Yes, indeed. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced plans to open a COVID-19 vaccination site near Broadway reserved for and staffed by industry workers in order to aid with getting Broadway back in business by the fall. Also announced a mobile vaccination unit to serve theater workers beyond Broadway and pop-up testing sites at or nearby Broadway and off-Broadway theaters to ensure that ample testing is available during the rehearsal period leading up to reopening. Uh, while there's no mention of other performing arts workers in this announcement, according to the New York Times, the mayor's office did say that other performing artists would not be turned away once vaccine eligibility expanded, which, as of next week, will include anyone over the age of 16 in New York. So while the story was taken somewhat out of context as vaccinations for theater workers uh, when it was announced, with more clarity about when folks will be eligible for the vaccines, this seems significantly more viable. Um, I just hope that industry workers includes front of house staff, stage crew, wardrobe department, all the people who make Broadway actually happen other than just the people on stage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we actually almost made this a roundtable segment because there's a lot to be discussed here too. But um, we'll link to some informative coverage of the whole situation in the show notes very important for sure. Most of us have probably seen the iconic poster Leg Warmers by Harvey Edwards. It's the image that may have been on the wall of your ballet studio. It features a dancer's legs and feet in fifth position covered by tattered leg warmers. Well, the original C print, which is a photographic print made from a color negative, is going up for sale at a Bonhams Gallery auction in New York City next Friday, April 9th. Uh, so I feel like a bad nerd for having left this out of my rundown of the Royal Opera House's season announcement on last week's episode. So, Wayne McGregor will be premiering a family-friendly show for his company based on The Dark Crystal, a beloved 1982 Jim Henson film that was adapted by Netflix into a television series in 2019, which, sadly, only got one season. Uh, puppets and props for what is being called the Dark Crystal Odyssey will be provided by Henson's Creature Shop. So it's kind of cool that Jim Henson's like whole team is apparently really involved in this production, whatever it turns out to be. Yeah, it will very much be a Henson world that we're inhabiting. Looking forward to that. Um, Chicago's Mayfair Performing Company, formerly Mayfair Academy of Fine Arts, has been forced to close after more than 60 years in operation due to COVID-19. The organization was founded by the beloved tap dancer, choreographer, and teacher Tommy Sutton, and it was renowned for producing highly successful dancers and nurturing generations of diverse dancers. English National Ballet announced its 2021 through 22 season, which is to include the long-delayed premieres of Akram Khan's Creature and Tamara Rojo's reimagining of Raymonda. And while Alina Kujikaru, as previously announced, is departing from the company, Maria Kachetkova will be joining as a lead principal at least for the season, which is very exciting news. 
I'm excited for that. Bard Summerscape is set to return this summer from July 8th to August 22nd, presenting both indoor and outdoor performances. The season will begin with the debut of I Was Waiting for the Echo of a Better Day, which is a site-specific, full-length piece by choreographer Pam Tanowitz, who is also Dance Magazine's April cover star, and music by composer Jesse Montgomery. All the love for Pam. Uh, I'm so curious to see what the rest of the lineup is going to be, which is still to be announced. Yeah, stay tuned. And in hopeful, I think, news, uh, as of Monday this week, residents of Sydney, Australia can dance again at weddings, pubs, and nightclubs as locally acquired COVID-19 cases have fallen to zero. Uh, Also of note, in the newly eased restrictions, uh, entertainment venues, including theaters, can seat at 100% capacity. Um, I think Australia has been like really on top of like quarantining new arrivals and contact tracing and making testing easily available and all of that is still very much in place. And as a result, I think they're getting to see some hard earned easing of restrictions. Congratulations to them. Seriously. Cue all of us just like gazing longingly in the general direction of Australia. I know we're kind of like the Squidward meme looking out the window right now. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> it. All right. So we're sort of continuing our headline roundup into our first roundtable discussion because our first topic is a story that's been making a ton of headlines recently. TikTok star Addison Ray appeared on last Friday's episode of The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. She walked Fallon through a few of the app's popular dance challenges, and the segment was honestly pretty awkward and bad to begin with, but it was made much worse by the fact that none of the dance's original creators were credited and nearly all of those creators were people of color. So Twitter, bless Twitter, quickly took both Ray and Fallon to task. Ray issued a strange kind of half apology to TMZ. She said that the original creators were named in the YouTube post of the clip and that, quote, it's kind of hard to credit during the show, unquote. But This is yet another example of a common problem on TikTok and also well beyond TikTok of art created by BIPOC artists being co-opted by white influencers. Well, and I think it's it's fairly easy to see what happened here, or at least to make an educated guess, right? Like, probably Addison Rae's team was in touch with the Jimmy Fallon team. They want to promote her new single since she's Mm -hmm. got an audience on TikTok. They're probably like, oh, hey, let's do something with that. And they had the idea for this teaching TikTok dances bit. That seems like a much more likely sequence of events to me than The Tonight Show saying, let's do a segment about TikTok dances. Who should we get? Because them starting from that place would imply that they actually care about dance. And I, nothing that has happened here has convinced me that to be the case, uh, not least because they failed to see what the segment would ultimately be about, mm-hmm. which is yet again, Black creators having their work swept under the rug and appropriated. And also, didn't we just have this conversation like a year ago? Yeah. We've been over like, this. I feel like I am having the worst deja vu right now. Yeah, it just seems to never end. I'm concerned about why Black creators aren't achieving the popularity that artists like Addison Rae are finding, and it seems to be part of a larger trend in entertainment of Black celebrities having more difficulty achieving mainstream popularity. As much as I would have loved to see the Black artists who created these dances on the show 
as Courtney said, it wasn't really about showcasing TikTok dances or about promoting Addison Rae's new single. But I am curious about why Black creators aren't gaining the followings that can be leveraged to launch careers in fields like music or beauty the way um, Rae has in the first place. I suspect some of this might have to do with the TikTok algorithm, which according to Hootsuite, um, shows content to users who are already likely to be interested in it, and then the interaction it receives determines its future distribution. And I'm afraid that that might be contributing to a feedback loop that keeps Black creators from building large followings. I also wonder how much of this might simply stem from the racial empathy gap as it relates to entertainment. Mm-hmm. IndieWire referenced this phenomenon in a 2014 article titled Why White People Don't Like Black Movies. Um, essentially, it tends to be more difficult for white audiences to identify with Black film characters than it is for Black audiences to identify with white characters. This seems to at least partially be because we've had you know, no choice for so long that we've developed that ability to be more flexible in who we relate to. So similarly, I suspect that white social media users may find it easiest to relate to white creators, while POC users might be able to relate more easily to both white and POC creators, which then, again, puts black uh, creators at a disadvantage. Um, and based on a recent report from Iconosquare, Of the top 10 most followed TikTokers, only one is Black, and that's Will Smith, who's obviously a long-established icon in entertainment, unlike the rest of that group who rose to fame through social media. Um, And even if you just look at Instagram, only four of the top 20 most followed Instagram accounts belong to Black artists. And everyone on that list of the top 20 is a celebrity. So how much of what created an Addison Rae, so to speak, is due to these kinds of deeply rooted biases? And if that's a factor, what should we do to change it? Because I'm, I'm just so tired of this happening. But also, we do need to recognize that getting to the position that she is currently comes from basically a culmination of individuals liking that kind of content. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just I would really love to see Black artists, Black digital content creators, just getting to the point where they too can have, you know, pop careers and launch, you know, successful makeup lines. Just getting credit is like the bare minimum. So yeah, I want change. Well, and I think like there is something to be said about how swift and immediate the backlash to this was. Like people were like calling out like, hey, credit the creators. Hey, these are black creators that are being swept under the rug here and not being acknowledged. Like, I think the swiftness of that, like, I think really does say something about like a shift in the cultural consciousness around this that I hope is going to keep making change, at least from, you know, the ground up, but also like, on some level, hey, TikTok, like you Mm -hmm. are complicit Mm -hmm. in this. Like you, hello? (laughs) Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Like at a, at a certain point, we can't rely on the creators. This isn't the creator's responsibility when it comes down to it to fix this problem. Tagging creators when you're doing their choreography is a good start, but that's not enough. This goes way deeper and it needs a deeper solution. Yeah, absolutely. And I do hope that the backlash that we're seeing online is a sign of kind of the changing of um, people's mindsets and kind of an, an, an increase in awareness that this is happening. But I also don't want it to be the case that people say this and then don't actually do anything themselves to fix the problem. Don't, right. you know, make an effort to seek out Black creators and follow them and that kind of thing. Um, because it can be really easy to kind of say things online for whatever reason. And and then feel that because you've yelled about it, you've done your part when in fact you haven't contributed in any meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. So in our next segment, we're going to talk about two stories from the past week highlighting two ways to get dancers paid, even in the most extreme circumstances, like 
say, a global health crisis. First, we have the city of San Francisco, which is rolling out a guaranteed income program for artists in recognition of the financial strain they faced during the pandemic, and also in recognition of the fact that the arts are an essential part of the city's economy, which, yes, hallelujah, finally, yes. Um, The program was announced March 25th, and it is now accepting applications. So let's talk about what this program is and what it offers. Right. So essentially what this is, it's a pilot program that's going to be running for six months where 130 San Francisco-based artists will receive guaranteed $1,000 a month. Uh, So qualifications for the program include being a resident of San Francisco and being an artist, quote, whose artistic practice is rooted in a historically marginalized community, end quote. The idea of that is not to exclude anyone, but to try to encourage artists from underrepresented communities to apply. Artists can also be expanded to include teaching artists and arts educators, as well as culturally based craft workers and makers. From what it looks like, they've really done their research here in terms of figuring out what, you know, the household income maximums will be so that this Mm -hmm. will be going to where it's most needed. Also, in terms of making this really accessible and hopefully really represent a multiplicity of voices and backgrounds. Also worth noting, it's already fully funded, which is huge. A big deal. Yeah, it's being paid for by the city's Arts Impact Endowment, which was established by a measure that reallocated a percentage of the base hotel tax to arts and cultural services. So yeah, there's already a funding plan in place, and nobody can yell about that. That's fantastic. Then in a different corner of the arts universe, Point ran a piece this week about Ballet Co. Laboratory, which is an artist-led company in St. Paul, Minnesota, that has kept its dancers paid throughout the pandemic. And it's done that with this interesting dual contract structure, which provides dancers with administrative employment as well. So each company member has an artistic contract and then also an administrative contract. I like really kind of love this whole thing conceptually, like kind of the idea is you have your artistic contract where you're in the studio 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. five days a week. And then you have like, depending on what specifically your admin duties entail, you have in the contracted states like what they think the minimum hours per week would be. But it's really left up to the dancer to figure out how to make that work with their schedule. I think that's really insanely cool. It also means that when they're in a period of time where they can't physically be in the studio, like hello global pandemic, they have these admin gigs that they're still doing that they are going to be able to get paid for. And then I also think just philosophically, the way that this decentralizes power within this company, I think is phenomenal. I think the, you know, it's co-laboratory as part of the name. Collaboration is implied in the name. And so the idea of like the person who takes on artistic director duties is also one of the dancers. The people who are working in fundraising are also the dancers. So not only is there like a sense of ownership from the entire company, there's also, at least I would guess, a sense that decisions are being made, not just like someone makes a choice and passes it down to you and you have to live with it. It's Mm -hmm. like really empowering these dancers. And I think it's a model of leadership that is really compelling and potentially gets like doesn't get around, doesn't automatically fix a lot of the issues that exist uh, within, you know, the dance world and the culture. But I do think it sets dancers up to better be able to advocate for themselves with their colleagues because they are all each other's peers. 
Mm-hmm. It's a great way to nurture the whole artist too, I think, acknowledging and supporting the reality of a career beyond dance in a uniquely direct way. And some companies have had dancers do admin work after the pandemic hit, but the fact that this company was prepared already um, is important. And yeah, like Courtney said, this is a leadership model that I think can be really important and relevant going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting the history here. So Zoe Emily Enroe, and the, who's the director, and the other ballet co-laboratory dancers, they were all formerly members of another ballet company. They banded together after losing those jobs at the same time. So it sounds like that crisis really shaped ballet co-laboratory, like it provided some context for this artist-led structure because they wanted to make sure that they had the power to protect and support each other. So it's a system born out of emergency, and now it's proved its ability to withstand another emergency. I think it's interesting that the idea of a company as a collective rather than a hierarchy isn't just kind of a beautiful, productive, artistic philosophy. It can also be a more sustainable business model, which is kind of fascinating and wonderful. I feel like I could have a whole capitalism rant here, but I'm not going to get into that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that could really, we could do one of those for pretty much every segment in this episode, I think. Capitalism gun cap. As, as Lydia says. <laughs> All right. So our last roundtable topic today concerns the burlesque scene. And the New York Times recently ran a story talking to 12 of the city's burlesque performers about how they've coped with the pandemic. And all performers are suffering right now, of course. But burlesque depends so heavily on intimacy and proximity and that specific chemistry between the audience and the performer Like, this is not a screen-friendly art. This is not a reduced-capacity house-friendly art. So how is burlesque going to come back, and what is it going to look like when it does? And actually, when I said roundtable topic at the beginning, that was a little misleading, because what I'm going to do now is cede the floor to Lydia, who is our resident burlesque expert. Well, first of all, it was great to see some familiar faces in this piece. I crossed paths with some of the artists who were profiled when I was starting in burlesque, and they were so kind and helpful. Um, But I won't position myself as too much of of an expert (laughs) since I went on an indefinite hiatus pretty early on. Um, But it's great to see these artists get some overdue recognition. Burlesque performers have been underrepresented, I think, in more mainstream conversations about the pandemic's impact on artists. So it's meaningful that this article happened, and it was done with such care and respect and painted a portrait of these performers as multidimensional people. So much of burlesque, I think, involves this balance of vulnerability and strength and reality and artifice in a particularly pronounced way. Um, regardless of the style of burlesque you're performing, whether it's classic or nerdlesque or what have you, you're typically still using some sort of crafted persona to express something true to you at your core and something universal about being human. Lydia, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Nerdlesque. Can we? Oh, yes. I, I, I need love to that know that just got more. brought in here. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Lydia, go off. Yeah. Well, nerdlesque is essentially burlesque with kind of nerdy themes, I guess. Um, you know, video games, um, comics. I, I don't have There's the... a Star Wars one yes. that's like incredibly popular or it was pre-pandemic anyway. Yeah. Thank you for introducing me to this world. I'm going to go Google frantically right now. <laughs> it, yeah, it is fantastic. I don't know if that's a, a technical definition of it, but hopefully <laughs> hopefully, I did some some justice to what that's like. But yeah, there's so much creativity and so much diversity in burlesque in terms of people's interests and approaches and yeah. But yeah, you're, you're typically either way still using some sort of crafted persona to express something that's, you know, 
genuine. And whether you're doing that by literally portraying a specific character or by assuming an alter ego, you know, even down to having a stage name. So hearing about how the pandemic has affected these artists as people and creators, along with having them photographed in the venues that they used to frequent, illustrated that so well, I thought. Some of the artists featured mentioned how the time away from burlesque has affected their mental health or body confidence or created a feeling of having to start over after years of struggling to achieve their goals. Um, and then there's also just the difficulty of losing that live energy of the crowd since, as Margaret pointed out, this art form does tend to rely heavily on touch and close in-person interactions. So a lot of these issues are similar to things that we've talked about in the dance world too. But and even though arts and entertainment venues in New York will be able to reopen at 33% capacity at least starting April 2nd, um, there's some apprehension among burlesque performers about going back to such close contact with audiences. Nick's Nocturne gave the example of, you know, putting money in your mouth, which artists used to do in performance sometimes. And also just from personal experience, things like dressing room areas at most venues tend to be very small and crowded. How might you know, that shift in the future? The pandemic seems to have exacerbated some longstanding issues within burlesque, like pay was an issue. Pre-COVID, a lot of performers didn't necessarily make much money relative to the investment that they made on their acts. And at one point, Joe Weldon, who's one of the foremost authorities on burlesque, and founder of the New York School of Burlesque mentioned that since pivoting to online, the school's only generating about a quarter of the money it used to, and it was only nearly sustainable before. Um, and then the last thing that I'm going to mention is for burlesque performances, it's not as simple as going virtual as an alternative to being on stage, even though that's also a complicated process for you know other kinds of dance artists. Social media platforms tend to limit performers' ability to share their content due to its typically you know, sexual nature. Like during the pandemic, a, a sizable number of artists shifted from Instagram to Twitter, for example, due to changes in the terms of service. But as some of the artists also mentioned, the limitations are fueling creativity, which has been great to see. And the New York burlesque scene is resilient. It's you know been stamped out before and come back, and I have hope that it'll return. Lydia, it was such a privilege to attend your burlesque TED Talk. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for coming to my burlesque TED Talk. I wish like the audience could see like me and Margaret. We're both just kind of like sitting back from our mics, just like nodding along like, <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Um, we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we will have our interview with Sydney Mosley. So stay tuned. Hi again, dance friends. I am so excited to be here now with Sydney L. Mosley. Sydney, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Sydney is many things. She is an artist activist. She's a writer. She's an educator. She produces experiential dance works, experiential being a key word there, with her dance theater collective, Sydney L. Mosley Dances or SLM Dances. And you've probably read her beautiful writing in Essence or the Brooklyn Rail or Dance Magazine. That's a super abbreviated version of her bio. And Sydney will include links to your website and your social pages in the episode description, too, so people can find more information there. But can you actually start off by sharing with our listeners what you think they should know about who you are and your relationship with dance? Sure, yes. Um, who am I? I am... 
Sydney Mosley, Sydney Liana Mosley, if you ever wondered what the L oh, stands the L. for. Um, I'm born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, um, but have been in New York City ever since I came here for college at Barnard College. And um, I've lived basically half my life in each place. So both places are considered home to me. Um, my relationship to dance, I've been, you know, like many people dancing since I was four. Um, and I am in the dance world, uh, not only as a performer, but as a choreographer. I have worked as a producer. I have worked as um, <clears throat> an educator, both K through 12, as well as in colleges and universities. And I think probably the most important thing to know is that I process the world through dance. Um, and I use both the choreographic process, as well as the, the building of a collective, building of an organization um, to, try and create a better future i think yeah <laughs> um we're not going to mess around today we have a list of questions that's very involved and i want to get to as much of it as we can because as you are already hearing sydney is brilliant so <laughs> let's dive right into the deep end you recently wrote a piece for dance magazine about why you're waiting for the pandemic to end to produce a performance and about how dance artists should give themselves permission to rest right now. And you expressed feelings that clearly resonated with people. A lot of people are feeling these kinds of feelings. How did you put words around those feelings? What's the, what's the story behind that piece? Um, I think I was feeling a bit frustrated um, in a lot of different ways. I felt like as soon as the pandemic hit, uh, we got smacked with all of these online dance classes and online performances, people trying to figure out how to salvage what they were planning to present in uh, real time and real space to the virtual space. Um, people were like grieving because all of a sudden all of their work was lost. There was all these things happening and it felt like no one had taken a beat. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, to process what was happening and to be just be present with that. Um, it just felt like people felt the need to continue this go, 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 when clearly the <clears throat> powers that be were asking us to take a moment and stop and rest. Um, even, you know, I remember those first few weeks of the shutdown and they were getting all of these environmental reports about like how the dolphins were swimming yeah. again, like the trees were regenerating. <laughs> and it was like, oh, because people stopped and they stopped polluting the air. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I was definitely feeling a frustration around that. And I, you know, I think, um, the energy in the dance field has gone up and down since then in terms of how much people have chosen to engage or not engage. But I still feel this overwhelming like push, push, push to reopen, push, push, push to keep producing, push, push, push. And I'm not sure that what people are pushing for is actually in alignment with what they really need or is in alignment with their artistic practice. It just feels like pushing for the sake of pushing, um, which is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And that's such a, 
It's such a classic dance thing too, to always be on the treadmill. You always have to be going. If you stop moving, you lose momentum. Everything's over, you know, which mm-hmm. I guess maybe part of that is the sense of like maintaining a connection with your dancer body and maintaining that kind of conditioning. But that doesn't have to be reflected in your creative process. They're two completely different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so leading a dance collective, I mean, figuring out how to keep not only yourself, but also your creative partners activated and inspired and most critically paid. It's hard enough in the before times, before COVID changed everything. How have you approached that work during the past year with COVID as this huge additional stressor? How how has dealing with the pandemic changed you maybe as a leader? Um, The pandemic actually has not changed me as a leader. Mm -hmm. It actually has fortified me and affirmed me as a leader. Um, in a lot of different ways. One is that this year I realized that, oh, I actually built a container that could withstand crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is because we've never had a lot to start with. You know, we we have had very few monetary resources over the past uh, almost 11 years now of making work. And um, so the fact that we figured out a way to May, uh, what I want to say, sustain one another and to sustain our relationships and our art making um, means that we were ready for uh, a really lean moment <laughs> in the general economy. Um, I would also just wanted to name that we took the time to honor our grief. Mm-hmm. We took the time to um, be there for one another and to really be a soft place to land at the end of the really up and down dynamic days that roller coaster days that 2020 um, and now even into 2021 has taken us through. Um, and we literally started to tell at that point in pandemic where uh, all the days started to run together. You know, we were all keeping time by Esalen Dances Day or not Esalen Dances Day. We we meet twice a week and it was like, okay, that's how we're, we're t- uh, telling time together. And I think for, um, you know, us, I said to my co-leadership, my co-leaders, we're going to pay people until there's nothing left. You know, I'm not going to end these contracts. I'm not going to um, stop supporting people in their time of need. And I was actually really frustrated at how bigger institutions that had way deeper resources than we did really didn't consider that, or maybe they did and struggled with it. And for me, it's always about the people. So how can I keep supporting my people to the bit, to the bitter end, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It is strange. It's like the larger the organization is, the less likely it is to prioritize its artists. Mm-hmm. It's more about sustaining the organization as this larger mm-hmm. thing, which that's missing the point. Um, right. I, I I love the idea of, and you talked about this in your Dance Magazine piece too, about rehearsal as a sacred ritual. It's not just about the product. It's about the process. And as a way of marking time, as a way of continuing something that you're building on, even if it's not building toward a a performance. Um, All right. So speaking of getting artists paid, um, I wanted to talk a little about dance fundraising because you've written a lot about this um, and more specifically about fundraising for Black dance and for Black bodies. 
this idea that if Black Lives Matter, then we need to be funding Black dancing bodies now, should always have been. So we'll link in the show notes to the pieces that you wrote for Essence.com and then the follow-up you wrote for the Brooklyn Rail. But can you talk a little about your approach to fundraising for SLM dances and about how the dance ecosystem should rethink the way it it shares or allocates resources? Yeah. Um, so for SLM dances, I mean, those are two kind of very big and different questions that sit by side, mm-hmm. side by side with each other. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about SLM dances, which is that in terms of our income pie, um, most of our income is actually earned income through our education programs. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really important to name that. Um, and then there are there's individual donor fundraising, which we really look at look at as a grassroots effort, um, that it is a people powered, the people who we are in relationship with, we are asking them to be a part of, a, uh, of our community by sustaining us through fundraising. And then, you know, if we happen to get a grant, praise the Lord <laughs> and thank you. Um, but we also know, we understand how the granting system works. And so are very clear that we cannot count on that. Um, and, you know, in response to your question about dance funding systems, that is the part I think that is that becomes frustrating, I think, because our communities that are often black and brown, that are often uh, women, queer people, in immigrants, in any number of other um, marginalized identities, um, they can only give so much, right? There's a ceiling. And so when we're talking about the broader um, philanthropy and funding systems, we're talking about folks who need to be thinking through a reparations lens, you know, like how many big philanthropists that the money that they have is direct descendant of slavery systems, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's come up off the money. It's, it's very simple, actually. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of great people who are doing work around it. I um, want to shout out Delana Dameron and Red Olive Consulting. Um, she's been doing a lot of work about talking to funders about how to support Black artists um, and to fund Black art. And then um, also want to shout out Sonia Renee Taylor, um, who's a poet and author, and she has a project called Buy Back Black Debt. Um, where she is encouraging people with privilege to literally buy the debt of Black folks because, honestly, we shouldn't have any debt (laughs) in this country, right? And so I think that when people are thinking about funding systems for the arts and specifically funding Black artists, we cannot um, detangle that from the history of imperialism, the history of slavery in this country, um, the, the history of you know, taking land from indigenous people in this country. Um, And any person who is a descendant of um, those atrocities should have what they need, without question. (laughs) So yeah, funders just need to engage with that in a very real way and come up off the resources. Have you seen any change, either positive or negative, in the world of dance fundraising, especially during the pandemic? Has anything shifted on that front? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, 
there were what I started calling constellation prizes, mm-hmm. where if you applied for a grant, but didn't get the grant, but you know, because of the pandemic, you know, the funder said, here's $200, here's $500, just an acknowledgement of your time and effort in putting this grant application together. And we know that it's hard right now. So they were giving that money. There were other funders who were like, you know what, we're just going to do a lottery for who should, who should get this. Um, there were other funders who, um, we're really just talking to um, grantees or potential grantees. What do you need right now? And all of that should have been happening already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately, as we um, move away from, uh, or as we, I'll say, as we move toward herd immunity, <laughs> um, we'll remember and they can't go back on it now. <laughs> yeah. They can't go back yeah, on it now. Yeah. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because there's so much labor in the grant application process that just often goes completely unrecognized unless you get you're the prize winner who gets that grant. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you are working on with SLM dances these days? What sort of creative frequency are you vibrating on? Yeah, I love this question. What creative frequency? Um, We are actually vibrating high in um, our creative space. We have been working on an evening length performance called Purple. um, And we've been developing that work since 20, idea came in 2017 and really like feet to studio floors working on it since 2017. Um, And we finished a kind of big rough draft evening length uh, work in progress, December, 2019. And then going into 2020, it was like, and now no more studio <laughs> so, um, But what the year, the past year gave us was time to let all of that settle, what we had made. And so now what we are doing actually is working on scripting the work. And so we've been doing a series of workshops and learning around what it might mean to script a dance theater work, what it means, what, um, how we want to develop our dramaturgical process, um, working with all of the um, additional production collaborators, musicians, and set designers, et cetera, et cetera. So we're really actually in a deep space of um, getting this, doing basically everything we can without being in the studio together to get this work ready for uh, eventual stage presentation and touring. I love the idea of scripting dance work. I feel like every dance should have a script. We should do this for everything. Um, (laughs) Actually, that sort of ties into the next question, which is about your work as a writer and your work with language. because a lot of my questions have sort of centered that side of your creativity, partly because I'm a words person, that's where my brain goes, but also because it does seem to be central to your practice. And it does seem like, you know, as we've been denied physical spaces, a lot of artists have been exploring that kind of creativity during shutdowns. Um, So how do you think about the relationship between dance and writing, or even more broadly, dance and, and language? Yeah, Um, I love that you asked this question. I really appreciate it. Um, Dance and language, dance and words, dance and writing go hand in hand for me. They are two sides 
of a whole for me. And um, the, you know, I think back to my first dance concert that I ever choreographed and produced, which was actually when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, and the title of the show was Dance in the Written Word. So, <laughs> that, yes, so that is how married um, the, those creative practices are to one another for me. Um, I fully honor that dance is a language of its own. And I also fully honor that writing is a practice of its own. And I love what they add to one another. Um, one of my big creative influences is Intozaki Shange, who is very famously known for her um, stage work for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. And she uh, coined the, the word choreo poem. And so I very much see my work um, in that legacy building mm -hmm. on that legacy. But people don't, I feel like a broader public is not aware that she's a dancer. She was a dancer. Um, and that, that was an integral part to her, her writing practice was movement. Um, so I just name all of that to contextualize that, um, I have I have had both practices, and what the pandemic has allowed is for me to spend more time focusing on my writing practice in a way that I wasn't always able to when I was in a consistent studio practice. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Here's a really large question again. What what is or maybe it's not that large. Maybe they're small things. What is bringing you joy right now? Either dance related things or not dance related things. I appreciate this question too. I you have some <laughs> great questions. They're good. <laughs> um, what is bringing me joy right now? Joy is being able to read in a way that I haven't been able to in a long time, and I'm in particular doing a lot of rereading, rereading books that have been really foundational to my thinking, um, foundational to my understanding of like black feminism. Um, and yeah, reading is bringing me a lot of joy. The sunshine is also bringing me a lot of joy. Warmth, being out on my fire escape, that is bringing me so much joy. Um, there are several TikToks on the internet that are bringing me joy. Um, in, in particular, <laughs> that one where the guy is like giving choreography coaching of the up challenge, the Cardi B up challenge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, baka, 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 uh, boogie, boogie, boogie. Okay, I can recite the whole thing. <laughs> it really brings me joy to watch those videos. Um, what else is bringing me joy right now? Oh, I am someone who generally all my life has loved to cook. And be, after a year of having to only cook for myself and no one else and being responsible for feeding myself, I actually quit cooking two weeks ago. Oh, congrats. And <laughs> the joy that I feel in giving myself permission to quit cooking and that people are feeding me. <laughs> There's joy there. So... I could go on and on, but I feel like those are the top of mind things that are bringing me joy. I love that because I'm so tired of people talking about how they've become like Michelin star chefs over the pandemic. And it's like, whatever, man, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right to release that. Um, mm -hmm. Related question. Can we talk a little about your garden? 
Can we talk yeah. about your plant babies and how they're doing? Is Mama T still around? Is she okay? We've followed her on Instagram. <laughs> Listeners need to know. Okay, yes. Okay, so Mama T, it, you know, her season has ended, mm-hmm. um, but we are growing new tomato plant babies. Okay. Um, and I am very excited because I have a lot more sprouts than I did last year. I'm also excited because I started them way earlier because last year I didn't know we were going to be in a pandemic and then I was going to start gardening. <laughs> so, um, but this year I was ready um, and I planted on February 28th. And so the thing that I'm actually really excited about is I actually think I might be able to give a few um, started tomato plants to friends. Mm. Uh, so it won't just be me raising tomatoes, but some other folks might be able to do it too. An extended tomato family. I love Yes. <laughs> Sydney, thank you so much for, for coming on today and making the time to do this. Thank you for being a good friend to the dance at it. Days when we have Sydney comments or DMs on Instagram are good days. I appreciate that so much. Um, can you, how can listeners support your work and support SLM dances at this time? What can we do? There's so many things you can do. Um, the first is that you can sign up for our newsletter. If you go to our website, slmdances.com, you will see an, a pop-up that helps you to sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us on social media, uh, both Twitter and Instagram. My personal is at Sid Mosley and the collective is at SLM Dances. And then um, we are actually going to be opening the circle of our collective in April this year. And we will be looking for new creative partners um, who will come on to join us for the next few seasons and hopefully be a part of our creative process and sustaining our collective. In particular, we are looking for a third person to our three-person leadership team. We're having a leadership transition. So Nia Austin Edwards, who has been our stewarding strategic visioning partner, um, will be leaving and we're looking for someone to fill that role and help us take SLM dances into the next stage of our collective. We'll include links to all of those pages, all all that information, all the things people can get there. That sounds wonderful. Um, Sydney, thank you again. Wishing you lots of sunshine and reading and TikToks and plant babies. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks again to Sydney. Um, As promised, we've included all those relevant links, all those ways to support SLM dances in the show notes. So please take a look. And then the TikTok she mentioned, that choreography tutorial, I just want to say for the record, that is choreographer Sean Bankhead in that clip. He is the genius behind a baka ba ba bak and a buku buki boo. I just butchered that, but you know what I'm talking about. We have absolutely, (laughs) yes, totally. We have absolutely included included that link in the show notes as well because Sydney's right. It's just a font of joy. It's fantastic. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone.
The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.